game day. And I say every time, Eugene, Oregon. Yes. This is the best crowd. Honestly, it's six in the morning here. Yeah. It's covered. It's raining. They don't care. These fans right here, pound for pound, are as good as any college football fans in the country. This program is staged to compete and to win championships. Oregon is going to be in the championship game. Can you believe the magical season this has become? When we watch this film, does our effort beat theirs? Here's Bo Nix. Guns been making deposits. Time to cash the check. Sound at Austin, which is deafening for an Oregon 15-point win. Chip Kelly still does not have a win against his former school, and we say farewell. Man, it feels great to be a duck. Welcome to the QB11 Show, presented by Scoop Duck, with Doug, Andrew, and J-Hop. Here are the guys with the latest scoop. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the QB11 show presented by Scoop Duck, where we cover the Oregon Ducks, the Pac-12, and all things college football. I am Doug Scott, joined as always by Justin Hopkins from ScoopDuck.com, and of course, QB11 himself, Andrew. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, mate. How you doing? <laughs> good. Good, Justin. How are you? Um... Uh... Pretty good so far. All the kids are home because it snowed down here today, so I I have a full house. <laughs> well, that's good and bad, I guess. Yeah, we had some snow off and on last week. Kids got to go sledding a little bit, or my kid, my youngest kid. The other ones are too old for it now. Although I went sledding, uh, so you're never too old. You for never, sledding. You're never too old for sledding. It sounds like you're yeah. capturing. Yeah, and, it's and too fun. A, yeah, it's too fun for them. I get it. Yeah, you know, the, the 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 high teenagers, right? They're just, everything's too cool for them. Although my oldest is in Hawaii, so there's no sledding there. Oh, wow. Yeah. But um, before we jump into it, I think we need a pickleball update. I, I did some digging around, and Lake Oswego apparently has a task force to study where to place... <laughs> where to place the next set of pickleball courts. And and so uh-huh. I'm sure the task force will be busy, hard at work for the next 18 months, probably, or more to figure that out. So, I mean, I'm, I'm glad ahead, to hear the city governments are finally spending time on the things that are most important. Um, like how to, how to make sure that everybody in the town can conveniently get to a uh, not overpacked pickleball facility um, I don't know. That's just it makes me happy to hear that uh, a city like Lake Oswego is finally important in, uh, focusing on the more important things. Well, it just it reminds my my grandma's 88. Right. And retired, been retired, of course. So, I mean, every time I hear something like that, it just reminds me of my grandma. And, you know, she calls me on a Tuesday and has a a problem that I'm like how is this even a problem? And it's not an, just give me some, you know what I mean? Like, just chill out. You have way too much time on your hands to be worrying about this. So that's what retired people do. I think they just, they have that much time on their hands to, to be able to tackle those kinds of problems that the rest of us are like, yeah, okay, I'll find a court somewhere. Yeah. My mom is a good example of that too. She will completely stress herself out into knots over something that might happen like two years from now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not will happen might happen probably might won't happen. happen yeah 
Um, all right. Well, we got a few things to cover today. I think, you know, first off, we kind of a follow-up story to something we've covered on at least two previous episodes, uh, and that's uh, receiver Treshawn Holden and his situation. As, as we recall, he was dismissed from the Oregon football team originally a few weeks back uh, after being arrested. Um, it has now come out that uh, there's no charges being filed against him, and apparently the more details of the story have made it out to the University of Oregon and the Oregon football program. And as a result, he has been reinstated to the Oregon football program that was announced by, uh, I think, Coach Lanning earlier this week or, or late last week, probably more likely. So he's back on the team. Oregon's back to 92 potential scholarship players at this point, And the wide receiver room gets a, a probable or likely starter back. So, you know, good for Treshawn. I'm happy for him that, that it all worked out and obviously happy for Oregon as well. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I guess I'll go next. I, I agree. This is, I think it's something that we somewhat expected um, based on our last conversation. Like, as the facts came out more and more, um, it certainly was looking like Treshawn um, had, I mean, in, you don't want to be in that situation, but if you're in that situation, I think that he acquitted himself uh, as well as you could. And I think he represented the program well. Again, it depends on how, on, on when you were looking at the story and when the facts came out, but it clearly uh, the university and the coaching staff felt the same way. And so I'm happy for the kid. I'm glad that ultimately um, justice was served or not served in this case. And um, the, the kids not having, I mean, like think about what that would have done to his life. So um, hopefully it's a lesson learned for him um, and how to handle it and, and what kind of social circles to run in. And um, he can, he can use it to, to grow and, uh, become a better man. Yeah, hopefully this is kind of like a learn your lesson moment, right? Just just be a little bit more careful about what situations you put yourself in. And, and uh, you know, as we all know, kind of who you surround yourself with, which, you know, I'm not saying that was or wasn't the problem. But yeah, if this can kind of be his aha moment and he can move forward, I think Dan Lanning handled it right. You know, I, I think the word dismissed maybe – um, up front was a little harsh. You probably, sh you know, maybe should have gone with like suspended until further investigation. But if that's the only mistake that was caused here in this whole thing, um, that's pretty minor. So yeah, I think he handled the right way, just kind of going through the investigative process, letting it play out, and then obviously just making sure that that Treshawn was was fit to return, and he found that he was. So back he is, and and the Ducks, uh, you know, get a really good football player back that should have an impact on the season. All right, so let's move on to some staffing updates for the for the program. As we know, Oregon filled out its 10th and final uh, assistant coaching opening when they brought in Alik Terry to coach offensive line and to replace Adrian Clem there. But there's a couple announcements they made uh, uh, or yesterday, actually, about some coaching assistants. So these will be coaches that don't count toward your 10 you know, quote, on-field coaches who are allowed to go on the road and recruit and everything, but there will be people who, you know, whether they call them analysts or or whatever they call these people right now, I guess on their release they're calling them assistant offensive line and inside linebackers. So a couple of uh, coaches that will assist at those positions. So first of all, Mike Cavanaugh will help Alik Terry coach the offensive line. He's a, a long-time offensive line coach. He's coached at Oregon State. He's coached, uh, you guys can probably fill me in, he's coached a, a lot of places for 30 years or more in, in college football. So a lot of experience there. Mike Cavanaugh, you know, start with you, QB. You know, what do you know about Mike and, and how he can help out Coach Terry and, and the offensive line? 
Um, I he has a really good reputation going back to his time at Oregon State with Mike Riley, um, also at Nebraska. Um, in in general, I just think that he he's going to bring a level of experience, right? Like he's been in the industry for thirty years. He's coached at a bunch of different places with some really well respected coaches. I always thought that his offensive lines uh, at Oregon State were much better prepared than their talent level would like likely indicate they should be. Um, and so, I don't know, I think that adding a veteran presence like this, someone who's been there, done that, who, um, it, not to say that Terry isn't going to have the answers to the questions, but having somebody who's who's just been in the trenches for this long um, and could have some tricks to the trade, could have some answers to specific questions just from experience and being on different staffs, whereas Terry might be a really advanced coach for his age. Um, he doesn't have this Rolodex of other coaches that he's worked with. Um, and past experience to draw upon. So I think that this just really um, is going to expand Terry's ability um, to grow and develop within the staff. Yeah, I think Coach Cav's in a a pretty unique spot uh, in his coaching career. I mean, he's done this for a long time. I guess you could kind of almost, quote, unquote, call him semi-retired, right? Um, The ability to come in as an off-field coach will make it so that he's not out on the road and doing recruiting and going to camps and and jumping from airplane to airplane and things like that, that let's just be real, that somebody that's been tenured as long as he has can be very tiring, can be very stressful, can really, you know, just make this uh, a hard job to do year in, year out. So he could come in and ultimately just kind of coach, right? I'm sure he'll help recruit a little bit, but he could really just focus on the players that are there, um, really kind of steady Coach Terry. And the other thing is, what's everybody going to it? You know, when, when Coach Terry's out there, uh, Alik Terry out there is recruiting and and making his pitch and meeting recruits. You know, that what people are going to use against him is his lack of experience. Well, he's going to be able to say, yeah, that might be the case. But look, right here in my corner is Coach Cavanaugh, who's coached for 20, 20 years plus or however long he's coached. Um, you know, so whatever lack of experience you feel that I have, uh, you know, I've got this coach here with me to help. Uh, provide that experience. So I think it's a really good kind of a yin and yang combination there. Um, And I'm not saying that Coach Terry couldn't do this job on his own, but at least he won't have to find out if he could or couldn't. And I think this just really adds kind of that level of protection for Dane Lanning to make sure that this group that really does need to perform well, uh, more than likely will get, you know, all of the coaching that they need to be ready. Yeah, it's, it's really smart. Uh, in my mind, it's, it's a really smart hire to, to back up someone with with that level of experience to coach Terry. And like you said, it, it mutes a lot of potential, you know, recruiting, uh, you know, negative recruiting that could could be thrown at him. So it's really smart. And the other thing I think that's really smart about and we'll get into coach the next coach in a second. But, you know, under the last staff, you know, we know Oregon started investing in some of these off field coaches, quality control assistants, you know, analysts, whatever you want to call them. Right. But for the most part, it was largely kind of under the radar. Right. They, they weren't like super vocal about it. They weren't it wasn't like they were hiding who was working in those roles, but they weren't advertising it either. Um, and and one thing I'm seeing, especially this year, is uh, more publication, I guess, if you will, of some of these off-field hires, particularly the key ones like this one and the linebacker assistant, who Mikowski, who we'll talk about in a second. I, I think that's really smart. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, getting out in front of that, getting, you know, it's, it's you're hiring these people who are bringing value to your program. And so 
touting it is is a smart move versus kind of just like oh um this is happening and no one really knows about it yeah, yeah, yeah. i agree yeah go ahead justin well, no, I was just going to say, yeah, because these guys are, are the up-and-coming guys, right? They're the ones that want to establish their name and build up a reputation. And so if that's what you're kind of selling them on, hey, come to Oregon and learn from the best and we'll help, it's only fair to kind of promote them because most of these guys aren't making much. I mean, they really aren't making a lot of money, and they're going to put in a lot of hours. But that's what, this ta- that's what coaching industry takes, right? You go in, and basically you're working for free or you're working for cheap until – you know, you've built up your name uh, that somebody decides to trust you and give you a job. So why not, if you're Dan Lanning, say, hey, look, I'm going to help promote you and help you move up the ladder. You're going to you know, probably get somewhere between one and two years of really good years out of these guys that are getting buster butts for you and give you 110 percent. So you may as well try and 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 kind of reciprocate that as best as you can. Well, not only that, but you're also building a backlog of coaches for the future, right? Um Maybe some of these guys that are getting analyst roles are younger guys who will need to go hop and grab a, a FCS or a G5 job first. But then you have you you have like you have a working interview with these guys for the future um, as staff positions open up. Yeah. So speaking of, let's move on to uh, Brian Michalowski, who's been hired to coach inside linebackers. You know, filling in the role that Jake Long filled last year before moving on to Alabama. And this one's a little bit different. He is more of the the young, younger, up and coming mold. Um, you know, kind of the opposite of what we're seeing with Kavanaugh. And but he has he and Dan Landing really have a, quite a connection together. Um, he was a GA at Memphis when Landing was at Memphis, and then he was a quality control assistant at Georgia in 2018, where of course Dan Landing was was working as well. He also spent some time as a as a QC assistant at Oregon State, so he's got some familiarity in in the Pac-12 conference and in the state even. Um, and he also worked as an outside linebackers coach in Colorado a couple of years ago and, and actually was a really strong recruiter for Colorado in that 2020 cycle, um, which is, you know, Colorado was not a good recruiting program. For, so for him to be able to land, you know, some kind of blue chip talent there and, and that cycle says that maybe he's got some recruiting chops as well. Obviously, being an off-field assistant, you can only recruit when players come to campus, but it's still it's still another feather in his cap and it might be a guy who's, who is – you know, on the short list for, for an actual on-field role, you know, whether it's at Oregon or somewhere else within the next couple of years. So, Yeah, I think, recruit, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think this is a really strong recruiting hire, um, and this certainly kind of fits that mold of somebody that might be, you know, coming up uh, through the ranks here. And, and like you pointed out, might only be here for a year and might get that opportunity at, at Cal or Fresno State or, you know, some sort of school like that getting it an inside or outside linebackers job. But um, I, I do think that uh, the linebackers were not good last year. And I think that if, uh, you know, Oregon can kind of figure that out, and this is the piece to, you know, making them a little bit more of a de- dependable unit, uh, then I'm all, all for it. And uh, I did already, I know he wasn't at Oregon State uh, in an on-field role, but I was kind of going back and looking and his name popped up a lot with recruits. Um, here and there just saying, hey, this was the guy that I talked to. This guy was recruiting me. You know, this guy had Oregon State in the hunt for me. So um, that's always really big. And and it feels like – it feels like – and this is kind of a tangent, but it feels like this is kind of the next wave in recruiting and, and the coaching staff is that, sure, you've got your team of, 
of coaches that recruit and do all this and that. And then we kind of moved on to edits being the big thing and photo shoots being the big thing. And now everybody's kind of doing it. And now it feels like this is kind of the next level where you go in and you hire that underlying, that underlay of, of, of off field guys, of, of analysts, of GAs of whatever you want to call them. And they're kind of an extension of recruiting. And it feels like that's become an even bigger part um, of the picture. It certainly feels like this year right now, just kind of with our knowledge of the off-field hires that Oregon as a program, as a football program, has really positioned itself to kind of closest resemble Georgia and Alabama, the way they've built out their coaching staff rosters. I feel like this is the closest Oregon has been to that at any point in time, just with the way they've been able to branch out and hire all of these GAs and analysts and and other off-field coaches. Um, So if that's the way you want your program to progress, I think this is a a huge step in the right direction. Yeah. I mean, ultimately the linebackers weren't good last year and I don't think that it was the fault of Jake Long. I don't think it was the fault of Dan Lanning. I just think it was a, a mixture of the, um, talent that you had available and the new scheme and system. And there was a lot of other things that were wrong with the defense. I think accentuate bad linebacker play. Um, But I do think that bringing in a new face uh, is a good opportunity to possibly upgrade at that position. Um, Because last year it was largely Jake Long who was responsible for coaching that spot. So now with, with, with a new face, another up and coming coach, uh, maybe there's an opportunity to get a little bit better there. But I also think that they need to reorganize the staff in a way to get a full-time on-staff coach in a position to um, kind of lead that room and direct that room more. So I don't know if that's landing. Um, I don't know how that gets reorganized, but I'll be interested to see what that looks like this spring. Yeah, it seems like the only place where you could reorganize long-term to get that extra spot would you know, maybe be not having a dedicated special teams coach, you know, like we do now, or maybe you combine edge players and inside linebackers or edge players and D line. I, I, you know, there's, there's ways to get there. Um, Just not, it will be interesting to see if and when that happens and how. 100% agree. All right. So moving on with, there's a couple other hires that were announced by the football program. Um, They're both player player development staff members. And I'm going to be honest, I don't know anything about either of these guys, and I'm not sure either of you do too as well, but maybe what or both of you could kind of fill us in on what, what is that role, right? Like, what does that mean? You know, somebody who who's working in player development. And so the, the, the two hires are Osmond Kamara and Carl Holmes. And, and obviously they were hired for a reason and in a, into a player development role. I don't really know what that means. So maybe most of our listeners don't either. So fill us in if you would. So I believe this is a similar role, similar role to what Tony Washington has held in the past. Um, and I believe this is actually like it, player development sounds very technical, like on field stuff. I believe it's primarily off field. So I think that these guys jobs are to make sure that guys are performing well in the classroom, um, doing well off the field, help them with professional development opportunities. I, again, I could be wrong, completely wrong about this, uh, but this was my understanding of the role. Um, in the form that Tony Washington held it. So they felt like they're, they're there to track um, players' developments kind of more holistically. And, and they all, that also carries over to workouts in, on the field and in, in the, in the uh, weight room as well. So um, my understanding is, is this is just think of it like 
human resources in a way like like oh hey this player is not doing well in the classroom when you get them on a pip like let's get him let's get him performing at a, at a higher level in these different aspects of his life um so i think i think ultimately that's what this is but i, I could be wrong justin i have a better answer no i'm I, I mean i think the the term i would use that most would associate with it's is is basically your mentor really you're kind of a mentor making sure like you said that they're getting it done in the classroom that they're showing up to the weight training sessions that they're, you know, making it to practices. And the the best part is when you can have multiple uh, player development people in place there, it's not like Tony Washington's having to watch over all 100, you know, student athletes on the team. Now you can kind of divvy this up in whichever way you want to do it by position, offense, defense, whatever the case might be, you can start to divvy this thing up a little bit more and, and really be able to, you know, if you've got more hands and more eyeballs, they're going to be able to pay better attention to that specific group. So it's just it's continuing to expand this coaching staff um, and then this administration, which, again, I circle back and say, if you're wanting to be like Georgia and Alabama that have, you know, 100 people on staff or whatever the number is, Oregon was never even remotely near that number. Now I would say we definitely lead the Pac-12 in that effort by a significant margin, are not on the level of Georgia and Alabama, but are getting closer and closer to it. So these are the types of hires you make, because as we know, there's no way to circumvent how many on-field coaches you hire. I mean, the number is the number and everybody has to follow it. So the only other natural way to make these you know, changes or these hires is to, you know, come up with off-field roles, come up with administrative roles. Um, and every bit helps. I mean, it might seem redundant. It might seem silly, but every little bit helps. You know, it keeps these guys out of trouble. Um, it keeps them, you know, from being ineligible, whatever the case might be. Um, and more importantly, let's not forget, they're still 17, 18-year-old young men, okay? And, and not all of them maybe have that leadership or that mentor at home. So by putting this person in place that might only be, say, 24 or 25, they're going to be able to connect with them because they're close enough in age. But they're also going to be at least mature enough to kind of be like, yeah, man, you got to You got to I know it's tough, but you got to stick with it. You know, that was me seven years ago. I totally get it. But you got to stick with it and grind through it. Um, and that can be a very, very powerful piece for a football team. Thank you. I think that that really helps enlighten me on what that role looks like. But also, I think hopefully our listeners as well. Any more thoughts on either one of these hires before we move on to our next topic? Not in particular. I'm going to be honest with you. Um, I knew I know nothing about either of these guys, right? So this is one. These are the types of hires where it's like the the, the staff and the support staff and Marshall Malco um, are playing a heavy role in this, and so you just kind of have to trust them on these. And frankly, if these guys do or don't perform well, we'll probably never hear about it. So it's one of those things where this is kind of like <laughs> behind the scenes stuff. Yeah, I agree. And that's why I thought understanding what the role is, is more important than necessarily who's in it. And no offense to, to either of these people who I'm sure are great and are going to be great additions to their job. I think that's just more of the nature of, of the role they play is, is more behind the scenes. I think Justin illustrated the bigger point, which is that Oregon is investing in all of these staff members you know, off the field at a level that is going to, you know, try to make Oregon as competitive on the field as possible and, and in the classroom and in the recruiting ranks and everywhere else. You know, obviously it's going to come down to to funding long-term as we can discuss later and have discussed over and over and over again. But the fact that Oregon's investing in these, I think is 
is a really uh, is a really good thing. Well, the the ultimate goal is you want you want your people at the top to have as much time as possible to do the big decision making stuff, right? So, for instance, as QB just said, Malco, Marshall Malco. So if you hire a couple of these player personnel guys or you hire a recruiting analyst or whatever the title you give them, adding more and more of these people, if they're, you know, given um, proper direction, ultimately takes more and more off Marshall's plate. So then Marshall can say, hey, look, I don't have to deal with making sure these grades are met or these kids are, you know, I don't have to go down to the weight room for an hour and make sure they all show up. I can now sit here and work on NIL stuff or I can work on, you know, evaluating film or the things that I need to do that, you know, these other things take away from. And that, I guess, in reverse, this kind of all rolls uphill, right? If you can get these guys in there and train them and and they do a good job and you're giving them direction, it frees you up to go do the more important things that, you know, will ultimately make the program better. So it's, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a trickle up process, which is a little bit uh, different, you know, than we would like to think about it. And, uh, Again, like you guys said, it just means we're investing in the program. And and Justin, I know I'm I know I'm not the only one of us that's heard this, but like they because of when Lanning and Marshall put together the staff last year, they were understaffed for the entirety of the cycle for the whole season. Like they didn't have the supports, like they had additional budget to spend on support staff, but they didn't have time to get candidates in place because they had, they had really largely missed this window that we're currently in where all of these types of hires in the carousel of, of off field staff really takes place. So um, they, they were running on kind of a skeleton crew last year. Um, and so I think that this is ultimately going to end up upgrading the organization um, as a whole. Yeah, I, I agree. And this is really, if we think about it, uh, here's the thing. So Oregon fans are in the U unique position, right? We're, we're, I think we're learning more and more about college football and college football recruiting that more than likely schools in the South have already known well about, right? Georgia and Alabama, most of this stuff isn't new to them, but it's all new to us. So it's a chance to learn and kind of figure out, wow, these are, you know, these are the types of hires and these are the things that the bigger schools are doing. And now we're doing it too. And it's very exciting, but it's a, you know, it's kind of an evolving learning learning thing not to mention we're also learning about dan lanning because he's only been here for a year and like you said he was pretty much just thrust into a, a spot finished up some recruiting and rolled right into spring ball so you know now we're kind of really getting to see him you know quote unquote spread his wings and, and really kind of take this the direction he wants to so um and additionally i know that you know here we are the last day of, of february but it doesn't look like going to start spring ball for a couple more weeks. So, you know, Dan still has more time to put more pieces in place. Um, so it'll be interesting to kind of see, you know, what this thing looks like when they start up fall ball or spring ball, excuse me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So it's February 28th, which means the dead period is over. Uh, tomorrow we, we enter into a two month long window basically of where visits are allowed again. And as we've seen in the last few recruiting cycles, um, you know, that kind of spring visit window becomes really important to build a foundation of relationships with, with guys who potentially end up, you know, committing to and signing with your program. So there's a lot of unofficial visits that will be happening, maybe a few officials around, you know, mostly unofficials over the next two months, you know, as you get through March, big visit weekends in March, you know, obviously the spring game 
will be a big visit weekend. And then you kind of really set the table for guys who are going to come back in the summer and the fall on official visits and, and hope, hopefully ultimately commit to your class. So, you know, Justin, you know, any, th- any insight into like which weekends we can look forward to as being, being big weekends coming up or maybe even some potential big name visitors who might be around? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, you know, I was just told that this weekend, the opening weekend here, uh, they're not really hosting anybody. So I, I don't know. I, I didn't ask, but I don't know if that's by design or I don't know if that's kind of coinciding with the current weather we're experiencing here in the Northwest. Like, hey, look, let's not bring a bunch of kids up here when there's snow and ice on the ground. Um, I would imagine the two things kind of went hand in hand. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think this uh, what, what will happen is uh, the next two weekends after this coming weekend, uh, you'll see some some bigger names on campus, and then really, you know, if from what I hear, I think the the coaches really want to sell around practices, and so yeah, you're you're going to be basically really bringing these guys in, um, you know, from spring ball. And keep in mind, everybody's spring breaks around the country in high school almost take place at a different time, right? It's not just like one set week that everybody uh, has a spring break for. So. What you'll see is you'll have a lot of midweek guys that visit uh, over the next three or four weeks, uh, starting in a couple of weeks. Uh, that will take place. And then you'll obviously really kind of lead that up to the big finale there with the spring game. Um, you know, guys that will be visiting for that weekend, um, you know, guys that will hopefully be there for the game. I know like Dante Dowdell's dad, his name's Lawrence Hopkins. I know some people are aware of who he is, but. Um, you know, he works with a lot of, of players down on the Mississippi area, not just the state of Mississippi, but in that area, you know, and he told me, he's like, yeah, I'm coming up with, you know, somewhere between six and 10, six and 10 guys that uh, will be there for the spring game along with myself. So that's kind of what I think Oregon's gearing up for. Um, but that's kind of where just in a nutshell, what we're looking at. And I know that you guys both know this, but maybe not everybody does, but this absolutely this this spring period here lays the foundation for recruiting. It's it's absolutely pivotal because if we kind of go back and think about the 2023 guys that Oregon was on late in the cycle or signed, I, I haven't looked, but just off memory, I'm pretty certain that almost nearly every single one of them had visited in the spring at one point or another or multiple times. Um, you know, so really you put yourself behind the eight ball if you're not getting these guys on campus and at least getting that face-to-face relationship, at least showing them what the University of Oregon looks like, at least, you know, kind of letting them get a glimpse into your program. So that's kind of what we're looking at. It'll be another quiet week or so, but then things will really ramp up and we'll be, you know, pretty busy for the next two, three months, really. Well, and that will help. Give us some content to talk about, right? We'll have we'll have uh, visits to talk about players to discuss. QB can break down what what he likes or doesn't like about particular players who are visiting or who just visited and whatnot. So I think that will, you know, it's, it's been certainly kind of the deader period of podcasting uh, over the last couple months. You know, minus a few things here or there, but it's gonna start. It's gonna start to get hot and heavy here pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I mean, I know, I think, I think QB can, you know, uh, expand on this, but spring has really become the most exciting time all year outside of, I guess, if you want to say the college football season, I love college football, but a lot of folks, tend, you know, used to tune out and just say, yeah, I'll just, tu-, you know, I'll just check in from like August to, to January or whatever. 
and now, yeah, you know, like you said, February is a very slow month and pretty dead, but it's one of like only two months all year where there's not a lot going on. Um, the next two or three months should be pretty exciting. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, it's, this is where you lay the foundation for that July signing, like for the July, like surge of commitments, right? Like I think we saw Oregon had about half of their class by the end of July, by well, just after 4th of July last year. Um, and so that's really kind of what you're building towards with, with this, like this, this time in the recruiting cycle. And so um getting getting as many of your top priorities on campus multiple times during the spring getting them here for the spring game to showcase the fan base and then getting them back um again for an official visit in the summer prior to kind of that run of commitments prior to the high school season kicking off this is this is a time where i think me personally i start to really engage with the following class like with this upcoming class in terms of recruiting after taking a couple months off following the february signing day well, one of, one of the best parts about it is you get attached to certain players, right? This is where, you know, maybe like for you or for Doug or whoever, the people that follow recruiting closely, you know, a certain kid commits or, or gets close to committing or whatever. And you kind of get to know them in March and April, and then you follow them more all the way through July and August and September and their senior seasons. And you just kind of build more of a connection there with them versus the, you know, the kid that shows up in the, 11th hour and, and you've never really heard of him um you know it, it that's the way i feel about it but uh, maybe that's just me no i think you're right i mean this is the time of year where you know as we move from one recruiting cycle to the next it's like it's just a bunch of names on a piece of paper you know like i can look at the offer list that oregon's you know has out there but just most of the names don't mean anything to me right I, it's like okay this guy's you know, this guy's got this name, he's from this school and supposedly he's a, you know, mid four star. Great. Like, I, do they like him better than this other guy? I don't know. Like, so it's like, <laughs> as you, as you get through spring, you know, and you start seeing visits and you start, you know, the information comes out, people like QB start watching film and tell me who I should like or not, you know, then it, it helps <laughs> you kind of start building familiar. Well, I don't, I don't evaluate players, so I trust you. Um, but it starts, you know, you, like you said, you start building that familiarity, right? And then and you kind of, you know, there's interviews, there's video clips. And so you start kind of like, okay, now I'm putting a face to a name. I'm putting an athletic profile to a name. I'm getting interest, you know, more interested in who I like and oh, I really want that guy. I really want this guy. Whereas right now it's just like names on a piece of paper. So what difference does it make? Yeah, it's no, an I interesting totally cycle. Well, in like at this point, every kid is interested in every program, right? Like a lot of guys, I mean, here's the deal. A lot of the top guys have had every offer in the country for two years already, but there's a lot of guys blowing up during the kind of this, like uh, this beginning of spring seven on seven um, circuit. And so guys are popping onto the radar. Well, a guy will be really excited about an offer that is big to them at that moment one day. And then the next day they'll get Ohio state and Alabama. And all of a sudden like that recruitment's down to two schools. Right. Um, and so during this period of visits is where we start to find out who really has that genuine interest in Oregon. Um, what kids are the, are the staff really prioritizing? Because it doesn't always align with what fans think um, is actually going on. So uh, I'm, I'll be really interested to see kind of how, how the board develops through the, through the spring, um, see what kids are really showing a lot of interest and showing up a lot, uh, and then start to see how this class begins to fill up. Because I would not be surprised if by the end of the spring game, Oregon's at 10-plus commitments. Well, and, and something that might springboard us into what 
Doug has next. I don't know, but it's also just interesting. It's going to be an interesting cycle when you think about this. This is it for USC and UCLA, right? They'll be into the into the Big Ten. Um, this is kind of that last full cycle for them to go through as members of the Pac-12. And you start to wonder, does, will that be a factor? Will some of these kids realize that you know USC and UCLA are about to play on the East Coast for basically half of their schedule and and all the travel that's you know dealt with that? Um, I don't know. It's just an interesting dynamic to think about how the conferences will change and that will, it will trickle down to recruiting in some way. Like we don't know how, but it will trickle down into recruiting in some way. So it's kind of interesting to think about it that way. Yeah. I think about, you know, when, when the announcement was made that USC and UCLA were going to join the big 10 and we start thinking about it and, and no one else was going along. You start thinking about it from a recruiting perspective, a lot of the early, you know, talk was, oh, this is going to, this is going to hurt Oregon, particularly in recruiting the West Coast of Southern California kids, because, you know, we're not in the club and those kids want to play in the SEC and Big Ten and be in the club. And I do think that's probably true for certain players, uh, the certain players who have already been leaving the, the West Coast, you know, over the last few cycles anyway. But I do, and you touched on Justin, something that I've said repeatedly over the last six months or so is I actually think there could be a reverse effect as well. And you mentioned it, right? How many, there are going to be kids in California who don't want to play half their games in the upper Midwest and the East Coast. I don't know what percentage. I don't know how many. I don't know if it's the good ones or not. I don't know if that's a, a top factor in their recruitment or a minor factor in their recruitment. But there will be some kids that, would rather play, you know, 10, 11 of their 12 games on the West Coast. And so I think there will be a reverse kind of impact as well, particularly on those two schools. But like you said, what to what degree that matters, pro or con, you know, for Oregon and for USC, you know, we'll have to see play out. It's an interesting, it'll be an interesting case study, I think, over the next couple of years, unless, you know, some other realignment gets announced in the meantime. Yeah, um, there's going to be... There's going to be some kid from well. There's going to be a kid from California that might flip on a Penn State game in late November and looks at <laughs> a negative ten, you know, win factor and be like, "Man, I'm not sure what to play in that because <laughs> that's cold." <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think that more times than not, the if conference becomes a factor, that is not going to be in Oregon's favor. Agreed. Maybe. I don't know. It's, uh, Oregon's going to have an easier path. I mean, USC and UCLA can, can, cannot win the Pac-12. I don't know how they think they're going to win the Big Ten. You know, the games yeah, are going to be harder. The, the games. Yeah, that, that's, that's fine, but what I'm talking about is in terms of exposure, right? Like, the, like these, these schools in the Big Ten are going to be selling, like UCLA and USC are going to be selling these kids on playing on primetime in massive Pac stadiums in really meaningful games. Uh, during the season, like yeah, maybe maybe they aren't going to be able to. I mean, they are absolutely going to sell that they're 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 in a position to win the Big Ten, but they they might not be actually in that position. But they can sell the big time environments. They can sell the big time media exposure, which can help grow their personal brands. Like the brands, like if there's a lot more to sell on that side than hey, you can play close to your family. There is, there is no there there is that it, it, which you know, magnifies the fact that the Pac-12 needs to get a, a really good media rights deal set up, you know, hopefully. Well, let's not jump ahead because I have one more topic before we go. Back <laughs> to that one. Um, so there, there were some proposed clock rule changes by the NCAA, you know, competition committee that will go 
potentially go to a vault here pretty soon. And we didn't touch on it. I think they came out just before we recorded last week and we didn't have time to touch on it, but I, I thought it was worth mentioning. And there's four of them. And we'll just kind of run through them one by one and get your take on each of them. And I'll give my take too. I think, you know, two of them are pretty ho-hum. The other two are a little more controversial. I mean, the ultimate goal here as stated by the NCAA is, you know, player safety. Um, you know, they're trying to remove plays from games, which removes hits from games, which in theory would reduce, you know, impact injuries. I think if you're being cynical or maybe realistic, there's also a, a TV partner media goal here of shortening game length so that they can play, you know, fit more games, sell more ads, you know, what you what you will. I, you know, if you compare NFL game length and college football game length, the, the NFL games are a little shorter overall on average but also they're more predictable in their length. They, they deviate from the, the average time much less often uh, and to much hmm. less of a, of a degree. And so I think that's what we're the, you know, the powers that be are maybe looking for here is if you have a three and a half hour time window, you know, the 25% of college games are going over that, right? Which means now you can't start the next game on your network that is supposed to be showing the next game, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas the NFL is much more predictably under that, under that time limit. Um, anyway, let's get to the, the proposals. The first one, I, again, I don't see this as much of a big deal. It's to eliminate back-to-back timeouts. So it particularly comes up usually in like icing the kicker situations that you've got all three timeouts left and you use them one afterward, the other after the other to try to ice the kicker. We've also seen it in other scenarios. I mean, famously Mario called back-to-back timeouts in that Auburn game when Justin Herbert, you know, lost his helmet or, got hurt or something. I can't remember the specifics, you know, and he called two timeouts in a row on the fourth and one, and then ran the ball where everyone in the world knew we were going to run the ball <laughs> um, regardless. So that's one rule change. I don't really see that as a big deal, whatever. If you can only call one timeout instead of two in a row, like it's not really going to shorten game length because it doesn't happen that often to begin with. So well, whatever, go for it. Any thoughts from either of you on that one? <laughs> no, I ha- I have the same thoughts you do. I mean, it's going to stop some coaches from overthinking it and making a fool of themselves. So that's good that. <laughs> that's that's good for the coaches, I guess. <laughs> I didn't think about it that way, but you know, the example I used might be a good one there. Um, yeah, the other you one, can't, you can't Mario Cristobal yourself into looking like an ass on TV. That's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> the other one I think is also pretty uncontroversial. Is currently in college football. There's a scenario where you can have an untimed down at the end of the first quarter or the end of the third quarter if a, if the quarter ends on a defensive penalty. Uh, so instead of that, they would just say, "Okay, we'll we'll have the quarter break and then we'll start the clock," you know, at the start of the second or fourth quarter. Like and this probably happens like five times in an entire season or something. So it's it's whatever. Who cares? Right. Yeah, I'm with you. Who cares? <laughs> yeah, that that one seems just completely inconsequential. Like they wanted, like that's a that's clearly a shortening the game. Like, all right, well, we don't want to waste the TV timeout. Come back, play one play, go back to TV timeout situation. Um, help them keep media, yeah, keep games in check. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't really change the game at all. It makes sense. Like, yeah, why not? Okay, so let's get to the ones that actually are more interesting to talk about. Uh, the third proposal is to stop to stop stopping the clock after first downs. So the clock will continue to run after first downs are, are made throughout the course of the game, except 
in the final two minutes of the first half and, and the game where you would continue to use the current rules. So it would be more like the NFL and the fact that you don't stop the clock after first downs until you get into that final two minutes. And this is estimated that would save, based on a study they did, it would save about seven plays per game. Hmm. Yeah, I, I'm actually fine with this one too because it's still yeah. it's still it's still college clock management for your two minute drill. Um, and frankly, like it's it's I think it's going to shorten games more than that because I think teams are going to be able to run the clock better and there's going to be less risk of these these big comebacks because like college drive times are substantially lower and a big piece of that is because like these no huddle or I guess these up tempo style offenses. Have, the rules are completely in their slants in their favor, right? Like, if you're if you're on the ball, if you if you can get up on the ball post first down, like you, like two seconds is running off the clock, and so you can make you can have these big swings and score and come back. So I think this actually might have an effect philosophically on how teams play um, as well, because I think it's going to be you're going to see teams wanting to run clock more. Justin. Yeah. Uh, I'm just kind of sitting here thinking, cause so I haven't heard any of these until you've said them. So I'm, I'm kind of like speaking on the fly on them. And I, I do think, uh, I think Andy made a lot of good points there about it. I don't, Andrew. I mean, Andrew, I think it will. Yeah. I mean, I think it'll change the game a little bit, but not a lot of course, but it, it would certainly swing it in favor of them controlling uh, you know, time limitations on these games. So I could see why they would definitely put this into play. And I would, I would guess that so far all three of these are going to get voted into play. Yeah, I agree. I think they'll all get voted in. I, the next one will be more interesting. I, d- I do think that I, I, if I was to, if I was to have a vote, I would probably not be in favor of this one because I do think it moves college football closer to the NFL. And if I wanted to watch the NFL, I would watch the NFL. I like the differences that exist in college football for the most part. Um, but that said, you know, this is one I can certainly live with as long as they continue to keep the last two minutes stopping the clock, um, you know, after first downs in the last two minutes. So we can, you can do those, you know, two minute drills or whatnot. And, and that would be a good, that's a good compromise. So I'm willing to, to say yes on it because of that. If they at some point decide they want to move to the NFL model and get rid of that and add a two minute drill or two minute timeout, then I would not be in favor of that. I, I think that I like the fact that teams can move down the field in the last two minutes and, and have a comeback. And that's so much better in college football than what happens in the NFL. And, and I, I don't want to move to that. Yeah, it's fun watching a game where there's 17 points scored in the last two minutes, right? <laughs> it is fun. Well, so let's get to I the one. I don't, last thing on that, I, I don't think that this move is ultimately like the snowball that starts moving in that two-minute drill direction. I just think that like this, I don't know, this just makes sense to me. Like it'll make everyone happier too. Like if, if Oregon, especially with the way that the current Pac-12 media deal is looking, is playing a bunch of late-night games, this is something that will help fans get out of there earlier. So there'll be less excuse and less bitching about the ability to go to games. Cause you get home so late, right? Like this is something that's a pace of play improvement. Um, Cause college games do take a long time now, like for sickos like me and you, Doug, who want to sit there for 14 hours on a Saturday and watch every snap of college football we can. That's great for people with families and things that are going on, like removing 30 minutes of like, kind of it's not it's not even gameplay just like standing around 
is not a bad thing. I think it can make, I think what it could do is make the sport more accessible to the NFL fan that's interested in learning about college football. Yeah, I would agree with that. And like I said, I'm, I'm okay with this role as long as it doesn't become a slippery slope toward, toward moving to the NFL model in the final two minutes. Um, so let's get to the, the one that is absolutely insane in my, in my opinion. Um, and that is the idea that you would run the clock after incomplete passes all game long. So yeah, that's you, throw, you, no. throw, you throw a pass, it doesn't get caught. As soon as the referee sets the ball, the clock starts running again. Yeah, no, that's dumb. No. Don't have that, that's not even an NFL rule. <laughs> no, it's not. It's it, it, and, and there was in that one, there's no there's no carve out. I assume it would get added, but currently the way it was recommended, there was no carve out even for the final two minutes. You couldn't even do a snap. You couldn't even do a you know the the what is a spike the ball. That would that would be an incomplete pass and the clock would start running again. It's insane. Like I don't even know how this made it out of committee. It makes no sense. Yeah, I don't know who proposed that, but they're an idiot. They should be fired now. Yeah, I, I think capital punishment is definitely on the. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the coaches, probably a, probably a Husky uh, fan. <laughs> probably, uh, <laughs> coaches in mass have already come out like strongly against this one. Uh, again, I don't know how this made it out of committee. I would be shocked if it passes, at least without any like significant um, changes, if if it even passes at all. And, and coaches have said, hey. If you're going to do that, like it's going to completely change the way we play offense. Like supposedly this this change would take up to 15 plays per game out of the game, but I think the reality is is they just get added back in because play, teams would just start playing like warp speed. Even teams that don't play tempo now, like if you're going to run the clock after every play, it also takes away, in my opinion, a lot of gamesmanship that happens. Like you know, if you're in the end of the game. And you're got the ball and you're ahead and you're trying to salt away the clock, you know, but you get to that third and medium situation, you know, you right now you see that scenario where does the coach run and punt or run and hope to get the five yards or do they try to pass and risk stopping the clock, you know, and then turning it over. It's, it's, there's an interesting cat and mouse game there that you would totally remove if you, if you implemented this rule, it makes no sense. Yeah, I'm I'm very much against this in a lot of different ways. I think I understand wanting to shorten the game, but this is like this this fundamentally changes the game, right? Whereas I don't think the other rules like change the game entirely. Is yes. this better or worse than the the pitch clock that Major League Baseball is experimenting with? No, in pitch clock okay. right now. Okay, okay. <laughs> so let me. Okay, I'm gonna go off for a second on this. Tangent, do it. Okay, there there are there are a lot of baseball fans that listen to this podcast, I'm sure, and like I am not a baseball fan, so I want you to know that this is the like perspective of a casual person who goes to a couple spring training games and maybe like two Diamondbacks games a year. Okay, so I think the pitch count is the best thing that they could do to Major League Baseball, like having that timer, because right now the my biggest issue like with baseball as a sport is not that the game is boring; the game is fun. The problem is, is the amount of just raw downtime that takes place between pitches and between, you know what I mean? There's just so much downtime. And so for someone who's not organically and like predisposed to being a big baseball fan, that makes the game more accessible to me. It makes me more interested in watching. Um, so I don't, that, that, that's always been my biggest complaint about baseball. And I think that that fundamentally solves it. Like I went to a bunch of fall, fall ball games last year when my dad was down here in town. We went and watched some games. Uh, up in Scottsdale and the the 
the pace of play and just like the fact that you could actually watch a baseball game in two and a half hours was awesome. And I think I'm hoping that that's something that sticks. No, I totally agree with you. I am a big fan of the pit. I don't really watch a lot of baseball either, uh, but I might watch it more with the pitch clock. I think there's some tweaks they got to iron out, right? You see these, some of these clips that get posted to Twitter and people getting all upset because, you know, a, a ball was called or a strike was called because the batter or the pitcher wasn't set in time. And, uh, you know, I think that's good for the most part, but I think I'm sure there's some some fine tuning they can make on the rule. But I, I'm with you. I like the fact that like get up there, get in the box, and get ready to hit. Like they, you know, you see these games and these batter every pitch, the batter steps out of the box, looks at the third baseline, puts some dirt on his bat, adjusts his crotch, like, and then he steps back into the box, and then you know, and then we get a pitch, and then he does the same thing all yeah, over again. It, and it's they, like 30, they, 40 this seconds. This is something that's pitches. been needed. It's ridiculous. And then the pitchers too. You got these pitchers who walk around, you know, commit a, a, you know, some sort of ritual sacrifice on the mound, you know, gyrate their arms 27 different directions. And then they finally get ready to pitch. It's like, come on, like, let's play the game, get up there and pitch. Yeah. Again, as a spectator and not someone who's a purist, again, there's purists out there who are going to hate my take on this. It, It makes the game more accessible and more fun to me. And if your goal is to grow the game and continue to grow the game, or particularly with younger audiences, like what we know about about younger audiences these days, there's more and more there's more and more things competing for our time and our eyeballs and our attention, right? And so, anything you can do to make that time more valuable, less wasted, is going to appeal to to people. So anyway, we're on a tangent about baseball, but I'm with you on the pitch clock. So, uh, but I would say also going back to the football rule, this would be way worse than the pitch clock, uh, way, way, way worse. And it would fundamentally change the game of football. If you stop the clock after incomplete passes, I, I can't yeah. be more strongly against it. Well, and here's the deal, like foot college football, particularly already with rare exceptions, like army Navy being the big exception, right. Plays at a faster pace than the NFL. So the, like, when you just look at play counts in college, generally far higher. Now that's also because some of these rules are allowing for more snaps, but I, I would be surprised. I would be interested to see the statistics of what the time between snap differences between the college and NFL game, because I think on average with the types of offenses that the college rules allow to play, that there would be very little difference um, between Despite the rule, no, no, yeah, sorry, I was kind of finishing, but between the two, um, that would allow for, like, I, I don't know, I, I think that they're they're going too far in trying to legislate legislate away an issue that's not really an issue. I don't think that that pace of play in college is the issue, um, although I do think that there were rules that were extending games when when you were conflated or I guess compounding that with the way that the style of college football has changed in the last two decades. Justin, you got any further thoughts on this one? No, man, I don't. I just, uh, I get scared, uh, not necessarily in particular about these rules, but all of the, all of the rules and things that college football has implemented um, in the last five years so quickly and with so little afterthought. And so this is another reminder of that, like, oh, let's just do these four things and see how it works out. Like, no, why don't you do one or two and see if that helps and maybe try one more if that helps, you know, if that doesn't get you where you want to be. But instead, you know, what will happen is they'll put all four of them into play and then in three years, they'll have to reverse one or two of them. 
So that's, I guess that's my negative slant on college football. As far as these four go, you could put the first three in, but that last one, absolutely no way. Yeah, I think we're all aligned on that. I mean, um, there's some stuff where it's like, like I, I look at it, like think of like a software update on your cell phone. Like some of this stuff is like small, like e- like ease of use, like things that make the game just a little bit better that aren't actually fundamentally changing rules. And then the last two are more like these are big updates that get rolled out, right? Like you do them one at a time. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And and or potentially you don't do them at all because they're <laughs> they're detrimental to the game. Uh, like the, the incomplete pass one. All right. Um, one last topic for today. I think we have to kind of, we're probably going to be touching on this every every episode until there's some sort of resolution, but that's the, the media rights situation. Um, you know, there isn't really a lot of new hard information, but there's certainly every day, you know, somebody, there's a new story out, there's a new rumor out, there's some new things swirling and circulating. And, and a lot of it's obviously ground around the fact that the PAC 12 is the only conference that doesn't have a, a media deal locked up past next year and into the 2030s, but also now the ACC, you know, and, and kind of the disparity between what the big 10 and the SEC are going to teams are going to be making ver- schools are going to be making versus what's happening in the other three conferences or two, two conferences that are unknown is starting to, to ramp up again as well. You know, just on the PAC 12 front, you know, there's been rumors that, um, you know, there's an all streaming option available from Apple. Maybe uh, there's an all streaming option available from Amazon. Maybe there's still an ESPN late night only slot available at the right price. It sounds like there's there's parties that are interested at the right price, but whether the whole thing can be cobbled together to a package that is is agreeable to, you know, 10 schools plus potential expansion candidates is, is the open question that seems to change by the day. Ion TV was rumored to be in the mix last week. And I don't nobody know who the hell that is. So the Pac-12 is kind of a laughing stock right now. And regardless of where things stand or what happens, like they, something needs to happen relatively soon. I think, I, I don't think we can sit in this cycle of unknown with the PAC 12 conference media deal for, for too much longer before, you know, critical mass gets hit. Well, yeah, we're the, we're the budget conference. It feels like, right. <laughs> Everybody's going to, you know, kind of shop us and, and, and get us on a budget. And uh, I'm with you. I think what, makes me feel that they need to get a deal done sooner than later is the fact that I don't really feel like there's a lot of people vying for us. There's not a lot of people that are like hot to trot, you know, streaming services, whatever. They're like, Oh, we got to get the pack 12. It feels more like it's us trying to get them, you know, involved, uh, you know, in a deal. And, and that's a bad situation to be in. So I, I, I do think the longer it goes, the, the more it's going to drive the price down. Um, I also am like you, I, I do follow this daily, uh, but have come to the conclusion that nobody, anybody, nobody knows really what the hell is going on. Everybody's just kind of guessing and, you know, has a, a, a rich trust fund buddy that, that talks to somebody in the PAC 12 or is talks to an AD or whatever the case might be that, that shares some tidbits. And, and, uh, you know, I would, I would wager that outside of, of George Klevkoff, there's probably just, uh, you know, a handful of people that have a good handle on this and most of them probably run a network or a streaming service of some kind. Small sidebar, I did watch the Portland Timbers last night on Apple TV. It streamed on Apple TV. 
I do like watching the Timbers. It was a pretty good broadcast. Um, the, the, the commentary was fine. The, the video quality was fine. Um, they need to tweak the score box a little bit. But that's something a graphics guy can do in an evening, so that's not a big deal. Um, there was a small kind of hiccup when it would go from a break in a play, like a replay, back to live play. But I'm sure they can work that out, too. Uh, otherwise, if Apple is a legitimate option for the Pac-12, um, again, I did watch a, a live stream of the Timbers last night, and it wasn't all that bad. Yeah, I don't think anyone's really questioning the inclusion of a streaming service or the quality of it. It's more of is that if that's where everything is, like that's that's the you know I think we talked about this on the last episode. That's the turning point where it becomes a a visibility issue that's going to hurt your brand and your ability to get your brand out there and market your players and your, and your program. Ultimately, if you're not on network TV, you know, in some form or fashion, or at least have that opportunity for one to two games per week in the conference. Um, you know, I think that the, the thing I talk about a lot and I talk about this a lot online, the, the dirty secret or not so secret is that the, the Pac-12 problem is really the same as the ACC problem in that you have a couple of schools that drive, that are left in this conference that drive TV viewership and ultimately revenue, right? So, and there's a, there's a lot of mouths to feed that have to carry off of that, that like top end, right? And the problem is the top end in this conference. So like you got Oregon, Washington, maybe half a bit Utah, that drive viewership and revenue, but those would be middle of the road in those numbers in, you know, or maybe high middle in the, in the big 10 or the sec. Right. And, and so even the big 10, you look at the big 10 and you're like, okay, half of that conference doesn't drive revenue, but the other half drives so much more. Like, I mean, Ohio state, Michigan, USC, uh, you know, Nebraska, Penn state, the, the, the amount, of revenue driven by those five schools is so astronomical that they can afford to subsidize the other eight and still make a ton of money. If you're in the PAC 12, I mean, yeah, Oregon makes, you know, would make, would be worth at least what, you know, an average team in, in the big 10 or the sec is worth, but they aren't worth enough more than the average to carry not eight other schools that don't earn. And, and, and the ACC has the same problem as we're seeing with FSU and Clemson now coming out this week and adamantly wanting unequal revenue sharing in, in that conference is they're looking at their neighbors, um, you know, in Florida and Miami and not Miami, sorry, sorry Florida and, and, you know, some of the, you know, Georgia and some of those other schools near them that they're competing, South Carolina, that they're competing with. And they're going, you know, though my my competitor over there is going to be making two and a half to three times as much from their media deal as I'm making from mine. And I'm locked in for 13 more years and they're frustrated. And they're like, how can we, we can't keep up. We can't there's it's, it's impossible for Florida state or Clemson or Oregon or anyone else to compete over the next 10 years. If you're running a 30 to $50 million a year deficit against the schools you're trying to compete against the Georgia's, the Alabama's, the Ohio State's, the Michigan's, right? It's just, it's, it's an inevitability. It's impossible over the long term, And so they're, they're yelling and screaming and asking for unequal revenue share. Are they going to get it from the rest of their conference? I don't know. I, I don't I mean, what leverage do they have? I mean, they can threaten to leave in 10 years. I mean, if you're, if you're Wake <laughs> Forest, if you're Wake Forest, are you going to say, 
well, we're going to give you more money now out of our share. And hopefully that will make you stay 10 years from now. Well, the likelihood is they're going to leave 10 years from now regardless. Yeah. So why it's should mess. We, why should Wake vote themselves a lesser share in the meantime? The PAC, it, so, it is. Yeah. But the Pac-12 like strikes me. It's like it's like that house that's been sitting on the market for 200 days, right? Like the at a certain point you cross over to this like, all right, well everyone has mutually agreed that you guys do, that the house is not worth what you guys value the house at, right? And so it's like now everyone is just coming in with bargain offers, low balls, because it's like, well, they got to be desperate. They've been sitting on the market for 200 days. Like they can't afford to just keep carrying this. You know what I mean? So it's like that's where the Pac-12 is right now. Like as a as a collective, it's they obviously overvalued it when they were shopping it around. And I, I don't blame them for doing that initially, but they didn't come back down to earth. And so now the number of bidders, at least it appears based on the reporting, the number of bidders and the quality of the bidders has deteriorated as those bidders have gone other places and picked up the inventory from the Big 12 and stuff like that. So um, we just have to hope and pray that Jason Shear is right and that Oregon and Washington are confident that they'll just get that reduced Big Ten invite. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you start looking at options, right, I, I think – you know, we can maybe make a prediction here, our predictions here in a minute. But I mean, I think, you know, obviously option one is if you get a Big Ten invite, you go. And it doesn't matter what the payout percentage is, because long term, it's going to be way better, you know, payout and visibility. Um, you know, I still like the idea of, of four West, four or five teams from the Pac-12 joining the ACC. I just don't think that's an option that's available or on the table. I think the ACC has their own challenges they're trying to deal with right now and it's unclear how much that would even add to their potential media deal anyway i mean contrary to a lot of misinformation the acc can add schools without opening their grant of rights it's absolutely true they can um and then that would that would trigger espn to look at adding money but there's no guarantee that espn has to add money or how much they would have to add so if the ACC was to add four or five Pac-12 schools into a West Coast pod, what? How much would that add for Florida State or Clemson? A couple million bucks a year at best. I mean, three, four, five. I mean, it would be better for the conference as a whole because you create more brand-on-brand matchups and more money. But the ACC again has the same problem fundamentally that the Pac has: is that there's too many. There's too many mouths to feed that don't bring additive value, right? You're looking at three schools, four schools in the ACC that bring value, and they have to subsidize the other ten. And and if you brought, you have to bring at least four from the Pac-12 for it to make sense logistically, and and you only really have two that bring additive value. So the other two are that you'd bring over are also going to join the ten that already are subsidized. So I don't know that it pencils out. Um, so beyond that, I mean, the Big Twelve is out there. You know, they want to add West Coast schools. I just, I don't see that being, I've been, you know, I've been on this all along. I see that as an option of last resort. If if the Pac-12 somehow dies, then and that's where you end up, that's where you end up. But I don't see Oregon or really, you know, I don't see Oregon going to the Big 12 willingly unless there's really no other option. Well, this feels like the last kind of experiment, if you will, until around that 2030 timeline where, more than likely, we will. I, I mean, I guess I thought maybe it was more realistic now, but at that point in time, which is only seven years out, you know, you're going to probably see the super conferences formed 
however they're going to be formed. So I think if that's maybe. kind of more, maybe, but if that's more of the long term, which is probably more likely as we sit today, your job, if you're Oregon, is to just really survive to that point, right? I mean, oh. and, and, and whether that's in the Pac-12 or a merger with somebody else or, you know, whatever the case might be, you're, you're really just saying, hey, we need to survive for the next, you know, seven to nine years or whatever the, you know, the next big yeah. round of negotiations will be. And uh, yeah, if, I agree. I think the best option on the table that from a realistic standpoint is getting into the Big Ten for less money. I, I, that's probably Oregon's best survivability option. Um, and second would be probably staying in the pack 12 slash 10, whatever they do there at a, um, increased rate. So you and Washington get a little bit more of the pie than everybody else. But, um, even yeah. then, like you said, you're probably only getting a few million dollars more. So how much of a, how much of a factor is that in the end? Uh, yeah, I think, I think that's something that's been talked about obviously we're hearing rumors that that's been talked about i think the oregon state president said that unequal revenue sharing has been discussed i think the interesting part is what form does that happen you know is that is that the tv money you might that might be a hard sell to some of the other schools particularly the the four corner schools who might have options to to go elsewhere to the big 12. i think the more interesting part or more likely part maybe is you know what if you just say you you keep what you kill when it comes to your postseason money in basketball and football, right? So you make the college football playoffs, you get that payout. Uh, you make a bowl game, you get that payout. You make the NCAA tournament, you get that payout, right? And that that might be a sell to Arizona as an example, right? You get to keep your NCAA shares instead of sharing them 10 ways. Um, you know, Oregon, Washington, Utah, okay, you make the playoffs, you make a nice bowl game, you get to keep all of that, you know, five million bucks instead of splitting it 10 ways, right? That's a big, that, that can be a lot of money. And that may be the easier sell to keep everyone together in the short term. But I agree with you. I think it's it's one of those two things is what I would predict will happen. Um, again, I think there will definitely be, I, I've, as I've been saying, what whatever happens in, from 2030 to 2035 in that time frame in college sports is going to make this last three years look mild, right? It's going to be a massive shakeup. What form or fashion that takes, you know, it's too hard to predict. You know what is the media landscape going to look like? What 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 is what are what is realignment going to look like? Are we paying players yet by then, or are we about to pay players? You know, is it super conferences? Do the is it not? I mean, I think there's so many ways it could go, but I think it's going to go some way different direction in in the 2030s, the first half of the 2030s, and it's going to fundamentally change college sports and college football in, in ways that you know might be good or might be bad, but will certainly be interesting. It's, yeah, it's definitely, and, and even then, even like, let's just say the Pac-12 and Oregon gets an answer here in the next couple months on, on the future, we'll be, you know, like you said, we'll be talking about this again. It's not like this is going to go away this time and, and we won't, you know, be bringing it up for 20 years. It'll be back on the table in, in, in five years, in my opinion, roughly, you know, five, six, oh, totally. seven years or yeah. whatever the case I think it'll be. start in, yeah, 20, I mean, uh, the big, the big 12, the big 10 is up in 2030. The Big 12 is 2031. The SEC, I think, is 2032. So, yeah, these conversations will start in 29, 20, yeah. maybe even 28, late 28, or, or definitely 29. Well, when we'll start having the next round of realignment, if it, if you like, you said something doesn't change in the, in the shorter term. You know, the Big Ten is going to get a new 
commissioner. So, you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe there'll be some, if I'm the big 10 and I want to add more West coast schools, like it seems like getting some to sign on, on the bargain price in the short term makes more sense to me than not. But, you know, every indication coming out of big 10 country is they're not interested right now. Um, the 16 team schedule makes for a perfect, uh, kind of scheduling logistics. The format is, is ideal. So going to 18 or 20 does muck up your scheduling. Um, and obviously it mucks up your finances as well. So I understand, you know, the other thing that I, I've been talking about a lot lately on this note, and I know we, we could probably wrap it up after that is I'm not sure the financial incentive is there for either the big 10 or the sec to add schools, you know, even longer term, maybe when we get to a streaming world where they have more, more inventory needs, but right now, like if you think about it, so the big 10 and the way their contracts are set up, they have an exclusive, an exclusivity window. They have three exclusivity windows in their, in their Saturday, right? They've got big noon on Fox. They've got the early afternoon game on CBS. And then they've got the, you know, East coast primetime game on NBC. And though they can't, they can't, none of those channels can play other Big Ten games in any of those networks. So they, they really have three premium games per week. They don't really need any more teams to fill those slots between Penn State, Ohio State, Michigan, USC, Nebraska, Wisconsin. You know, they will, they will, one of those teams will, or both of those, or two of those teams will be in each of those premium time slots every single week. So, does paying a lot of money to add even an Oregon make sense if 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 that just means you're putting Oregon on your fourth best game of the week, which was on FS1 or Peacock? Like it doesn't like your premium slots are already filled, right? Or you or Oregon makes one of those premium slots and now your now your Penn State games on Peacock or FS1. Like it, they don't need the inventory and not at the price they'd have to pay for it. And the SEC is in the same boat. You know, they already, even if in their projected lineup of what 2024 looks like, they're going to be playing between ABC and ESPN. They're going to have three to four SEC games and one to two ACC games filling up their six time slots. And they have Texas, Oklahoma, Alabama, Georgia, A&M, Florida, Tennessee. They have more than enough teams. Even adding a Florida State or a Clemson, you're just moving a team that you're already playing on your network into a time slot you already are playing them in on your same network but paying them double the money. It doesn't make sense for them. There's no, there's no upside. There's no time slots available. Oh, that, Sorry, that makes sense. No, it makes, <laughs> no, but it makes sense when you, when you, when you paint it out like that. And, and then I, you know, I, I do feel that Oregon and Washington's chances at, at getting into the big 10 took a massive hit when Kevin Warren left. I think that was their, that was the guy that was really pushing um, the expansion, and I'm not saying he was set on doing it before he left, but it just felt like, you know, he was the guy that was going to say, yeah, let's go ahead and add these other two in and, uh, you know, we'll keep expanding. It felt like he wanted to, you know, surpass the SEC. Uh, and now, yeah. uh, like like you said, whoever comes in is is not going to rock the boat, you know, needs to earn the trust of the of the presidents and the ADs and the, and the head coaches in that conference. So they're probably not going to rock the boat and, and go against the grain. And, uh, yeah, I, w I would say that more than likely Oregon's chances at currently getting into the Big Ten are, are probably not great. It just seems like on paper. I'm not saying that with any 
yeah. you know, source, source. It's not like I talked to, you know, I, I've never pretended to have sources on conference realignment because everybody I talked to it that might be tied to Oregon has just as much of an idea about it as I do. So wait, wait, you um, mean you're not one of those guys on Twitter who claims to have sources inside every conference <laughs> in the country and posts about them 17 times a day. I'm that, shocked. That, I know, I know. And I, you know, and I, I've, I continue to try and caution people like, be, you know, be careful who you follow. You know, a lot of these guys are just kind of either regurgitating or, or trying to come up with a, uh, you know, some sort of idea that they think works, but, um, and, and posturing it as a source. And, and so, yeah, right yeah. now I just, I, and I think that George Klaivkov's really smart. And a lot of the stuff that comes out is, is, is on purpose by him. You know, I, I don't think there's very, I don't think he's got I, very many leaks in there at all. There's a lot of misinformation too coming out of Big Twelve country because they have, you know, there's incentives over there for them to destabilize the Pac-12. But I'm not saying it's an organized effort from your mark or the conference office at all. But certainly within certain aspects of the Big Twelve media and the Big Twelve fan bases, I think a lot of that, you know, a lot of that misinformation is is, gen- is coming from there as well. You know, one other thought on the Big 10, and I agree with you, I've kind of written off, you know, Oregon's chances of getting into the Big 10 in this cycle, um, you know, several months ago. Uh, And I really think the key comes back to Notre Dame, right? I think that's what opens up further expansion for anybody really in the big, getting into the Big 10, because it does two things. It bring, you know, Notre Dame is going to bring a massive value, right? That's going to allow you to add other teams in addition to Notre Dame and still raise everyone's per school payout. And secondly, it opens up a second window on NBC, right? Right now, the Big Ten has, has one NBC time window. If you added Notre Dame, you get you could get their NBC time window as well. So now you have a premium time slot to sell in addition to the ones you're already selling. And I think the other thing that, you know, streaming, you know, whatever happens with streaming, assuming it's going to be a lot bigger piece of the puzzle, you know, in the next go around in seven years, that could be the other door that opens up more revenue to justify adding more brands, right? Because now you've got, you know, if, if Apple or Amazon or somebody wants to pay the Big Ten a boatload of money to have a Friday night game, for example, in seven years, then it, then you need more brands to start filling those time slots. Because th- at the end of the day, this is all about brands. Like, that's what people need to realize is that in all of major college football, there's about 20 teams that generate eyeballs and generate view viewership and ultimately generate revenue, right? And if if you're not one of those 20 teams, then you're being you're you're being subsidized by those 20, right? And what happened in this round of realignment is you've consolidated the bulk of those 20 into the two, what I'm gonna call now the power two, right? So 15 of your 15 of those 20 brands are already in the sec and and big 10 now right and then you've got notre dame is obviously another one that's on the outside and that leaves just four you've got oregon and washington in the pac 10 and you've got um clemson and florida state in the acc and that's it that's your top 20 brand values right and those are the only 20 that really generate a positive revenue and so again this is back to why the acc and the pac are in such a bad shape is because you need your two to carry 10 or carry 12 and the numbers just don't add up. You know, the sec has eight or nine that, you know, so half their conference is above average so they can carry the other half easily. The big 10, they only have five or six, but those five or six are so valuable 
above and beyond, you know, we're talking three X, four X, five X, the average that they can carry eight or nine that don't have value that, you know, Oregon, Washington, Clemson, Florida state are at the bottom, you know, are, are in the like 10 to 15 range of that top 20, right? They're not, right. At the, they're not anywhere near the, the stratosphere of Michigan or Ohio state or Georgia or Alabama in value. So not only can they not carry 10, they can't carry because the numbers don't add up. They can't carry 10 because they're, they're 10th out of 20 and not fourth out of 20 which is a three X factor. So yeah, yeah sorry. And, and, a lot of numbers and a lot of diatribe here. <laughs> well, and, I mean, and to your point that one of the things that held true from day one holds true. Now Notre Dame was kind of the linchpin of all of this, right? If Notre yeah. Dame had made a move to the big 10, I would say Oregon's in it along with them. Uh, yeah. But they did, you know, they kind of held Pat and that was, again, that was the thing that, at the very start of all this, you know, we kind of just sat back and said, hey, look, the one thing to watch here is Notre Dame. What Notre Dame does will dictate what Oregon's able to do. And, I mean, frankly, they didn't do anything. So <laughs> we're, we're still yeah. kind of stuck in that boat, you know, should Notre Dame decide to, to make a change, um, you know, then that might mean something for Oregon. But right now, um, it unfortunately, it, they're kind of at their mercy. Yeah, totally. And I think that next that next round in the 2030s, I think, is really interesting because is that the point where we have like a college football breakaway, right, where you, you take that top 20 brands and maybe 10 more, 12 more or something, and you form kind of a new, I don't want to call it a conference, but a new super league of college football team that's your top, top 35, 36, 32 to 40, somewhere between 32 and 40, I think, is the magic number, right? And it becomes major college football. And if that happens, you know, how do you get from the current state to that state? And really the biggest question is, at that point, do the Big Ten and the SEC continue to grandfather in their, their lower value members into that club? Or do they finally say, you know what, we're going to make even more money if we drop the Vanderbilts and the Rutgers and the Illinois of the world and no offense to any of those programs. Right. But they're not, they're not at the same level. They're not even close to the same level. Right. If we drop those and add the Oregon's and the Washington's and the Clemson's and the Florida States, we're all going to make so much more money. So that's to me is the interesting part. Is that what happens? Or do we continue to just be with like the, the big two stay intact, maybe add some more teams and everyone else gets left out. Yeah. Yeah, I think, that's, uh, I think that covers it, unless you got a, another thought you want to add there. No, no, I think we've gone over it, and uh, and I'm glad we did, because I know what, I mean, it's it's dominating headlines right now for, at least for pretty much all of the Pac-12 and a lot of the other conferences as well. But yeah, it's, it's certainly going to be interesting. I think that, I, I, I guess my last thought is I would think that probably within the next two months here, we have a better handle on, on Oregon's future and, and the Pac-12's future. Um, because obviously nobody wants this headed into the, the fall season or anything. You got it. All right, Justin, thanks for another great episode. QB, appreciate you being here as well. And we will sign this one off. We'll be back at you next week with our next episode. Maybe we'll have some some visit news for the coming up or at least get into some spring ball talk or whatnot. We'll see what the case may be. Who knows? Maybe we'll have a rumored Pac-12 media deal to talk about as well. Uh, so yeah, follow Justin Hawkins on scoopduck.com. Subscribe there if you don't already. Of course, you can find us at, at QB11 Show on Twitter. And we will see you all next time.